Never has it been more important to get accurate and unbiased information, especially in time of war, and when information has been weaponized by Russian propaganda and amplified through social media platforms. Today, I'm discussing the issues of reporting news in wartime with Alina Palyakova. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. Please like and subscribe to increase the popularity of our content in YouTube's algorithms and to get alerts about our latest videos. Alina Palyakova is managing editor of the English version of Ukrainska Pravda. Ukrainska Pravda is a Ukrainian online newspaper founded by Georgi Gongadze on 16th of April 2000 published mainly in Ukrainian with selective articles published in or translated to Russian and English, the newspaper is tailored for a general readership with an emphasis on the politics of Ukraine. Alina, was that a, an accurate description uh, of the publication? Yes, it's a better description than I can do, so thank you very much. Well, thank you, Wikipedia. That, that's where I got that one from. Um, well, first of all, I'd love to learn more about the publication how it evolved and how it's grown into the the current sort of audience that it that it's got. Well, we get uh, our the biggest audience we had ever at twenty uh, fourth of February. Actually, uh, in Ukraine, we were the second website after the Google. So people just came to Google, put the Pravda.com.ua, and they read news on our website. But after that, uh, after several weeks of doom scrolling, uh, they just um, tried to return to their routine. And now they read news um, mostly in mornings and evenings. And uh, we still have some several millions uh, of people per day on our website on uh, different verses, like um, totally in Ukrainian, English and Russian one. But uh, there are a lot of people who check it uh, every day, every morning. And has the desire to read uh, news-based content as opposed to lifestyle content, has the desire to look at news and consume news frequently increased, do you think, during the war? Well, now it's like almost nine months of war and uh, people are tired of content about war. That's why um, we post more news about um, society, about um, different kinds of um, cultural events, because there are a lot now in Ukraine. And um, the last news I was uh, adored was about penguins in Antarctica. And we also posted because, and it was very, it gets a lot of people who read that because it was like so sweet. And uh, the most part of news, like 80%, 90% now is about death, about uh, uh, war, about like not pleasant things. Absolutely. People need a, a kind of escapism, don't they, from the everyday horrors. But also in parts of Ukraine, as you say, um, not normal life, but there is a cultural life and there are activities taking place. So there is stuff to report, isn't there, that's not necessarily just war, war focused. Well, um, I think that Ukrainians start to make some cultural events 
from April or May in Kyiv, for example, while um, Russian forces withdraw from Kyiv. And after that, a lot of uh, cafes and concert halls start to make some events. Uh, and they gather donation to Ukrainian armed forces. And it's one way to get more money for armed forces, actually. That's why people go there. And it's also uh, a way to keep their mental health actually healthy because you can't be um, immersed in war like 24 per seven. You need to find something that will help you to be like a human being a normal human being. And is the audience mainly based uh, in Ukraine itself, or are you finding that a lot of your readers who have, obviously, due to circumstances, moved abroad, do you have a lot of people from, say, Europe, UK, um, logging in as well and consuming the content? Well, actually, on English version, uh, the most uh, audience are from the United States. The second uh, position is uh, United Kingdom actually and uh, the third one I think Poland because a lot of people a lot of Ukrainian people are live in Poland now and um, there are a lot of uh, European countries like Germany and France uh, who read us and even like New Zealand and several people from Arctic and, and Antarctic also visit our website. Oh, that's incredible. And um, what I've noticed as well, I mean, I don't know if the UK is different from others, and it might be because, you know, I live in a an area which has, a you know, a lot of culture going on, which is sort of Oxford and London, the two areas which I, I travel between. But there are a lot of concerts, there are a lot of activities, there are exhibitions, there are a lot of, um, I would say, you know, book-related or literature-related events, which perhaps, you know, if we rewind a year or two, um, many of those events would have focused probably on Russian culture and Russian religion, uh, Russian literature rather, and Russian culture. Now there seems to be a sort of transition there, uh, at the moment at least, with a big focus on Ukrainian events. Do you do you tend to cover those as well? Are they of interest to your readers? Uh, we don't cover it because we are focused on war and political um, ties between different countries. Um, but it's the same situation actually in Ukraine. There are a lot of um, Russian artists who came in Ukraine even after 2014. But now I see that uh, our people, especially young people, try to consume Ukrainian content. You, they read Ukrainian books, they listen to Ukrainian music. And I think that uh, if we can say that war give us something good, it's that thing. Yes, and uh, I've noticed this as well. Many people I speak to um, who will be sort of bilingual, you know, they will they will know Russian fluently, but at the moment, some people at least will will be feeling that uh, it's, it's too painful to potentially communicate in Russian, and there's a real drive to learn Ukrainian, isn't there? Yeah, actually, I'm from the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, which is closer to Russia, so there are a lot of people who speak Russian, and who spoke Russian and now they try to speak Ukrainian and uh, my mother for example she started to speak Ukrainian from the full-scale invasion she didn't do it uh, earlier 
And uh, as for me, I was studying Russian language and Russian literature at the university because I thought that it's normal thing. But now I understand that our region was crucified uh, so deeply that we even didn't understand what's going on there. But now people from different areas, people from areas which Russians think was like Russian speaking. So it's um, they want to go to the Russian world, so-called. But now all these all these people try to speak English, uh, English, sorry, English, yeah. <laughs> Ukrainian, of course. And later in our conversation, it would be good to uh, look at some of those myths which uh, propaganda narratives use. But let's let's turn to politics and and the war. And one of the first uh, questions I've got is the Russian losses are being estimated um, and published uh, on a weekly basis by the Ukrainian government. And in fact, those estimates seem to be pretty close to other sources of estimate, whether it be the UN or the BBC. And it's just an unimaginable scale of loss of life and equipment, especially on the Russian side. And the the um, the ratio seems to be around sort of three to one, uh, but it's actually increasing dramatically as the so-called, you know, mobilized troops uh, start coming to the front, the, the Mobiki. Um, could you sort of you know, comment from your experience of writing about this, that that incredible uh, loss, which is far higher than, say, Afghanistan or many sort of recent military adventures by Russia? Yes, actually, Russian loses uh, have exceeded uh, 77,000 today. And um, if to be like totally um, 77,001, 170 soldiers and uh, I think that uh, this is overwhelming numbers actually and I heard the theory another theory not quite like three to one but uh, seven to one that for seven killed Russian soldiers and uh, there is one killed Ukrainian soldier uh, but I'm not sure that it works because um, I think that uh, these numbers are quite higher but it's still it's a very huge price for our freedom and for our independence. In September, our president Volodymyr Zelensky told that uh, Russian army has uh, five to one uh, like losses, and uh, they lost like um, five times more soldiers than Ukrainian armed forces. And he also reported that um, per day we lose 50 Ukrainian soldiers and it's also too much and it's very high price. It is, of course. And it, it brings to mind as well, uh, you know, losses in World War Two. And one thing the Russians will always say is that they had the greatest losses in World War Two um, and, and Britain didn't lose nearly so many people. But I think there's a different attitude to the value of an individual life in a democracy compared to a autocracy. And it seems to me that the, the, the Russian system and the Russian elite don't place any value on individual lives. Uh, they only look at it in a more collective um, basis, if, if they look at it at all. Whereas Every life lost um, in a in democratic system is is extremely painful, and 
I know this is a difficult subject to talk about, but I've seen many videos of you know people in Ukrainian towns honoring those who've come back, um, treating them as individuals, mourning them as individuals, and feeling that individual pain. So I don't know what your your thoughts are on that and, and how you've been covering that as a, as a news source. Uh, well, I'm totally agreed that uh, people in Russia um, don't value human life as much as we value uh, lives of our soldiers and of our civilians here in Ukraine. Uh, that's why actually we uh, not announce exact numbers of killed and wounded Ukrainian soldiers because it's an issue of accurate data data and uh, we need to be very careful with that because um, we are talking about human lives and there is a story behind every this life and um, i'm totally agree that um, we honor every soldier who had fallen uh, in this war and we understand that um, we have no other choice. We need to fight because we fight for our country. And uh, soldiers from the Russian side, they have no aim. They just need to do what the guys from the Russian authorities told them to do. And uh, that's why they have no motivation and they're not such prepared as Ukrainian soldiers. They're not such motivated. That's why they are dying here. And um, people in Russia, I saw a lot of stories how um, mothers and wives of uh, soldiers uh, waiting for their deaths, actually, because they will get some money amount or a car or something else. And mm. it's insane from my point of view. It is. And, and, and it tells you something about the areas in which the troops are predominantly being called from, the levels of poverty, um, the levels of sort of hardship that they would value those material things, you know, above uh, family members. It's, it's fairly alien to, I think, the Western mind and to Ukrainians as well, who are, you know, fundamentally have a, a European attitude towards uh, the value of life. Um, and I wonder if you could also comment, I've seen videos recently as well about the investigators um, going from Kiev to newly liberated areas and the incredible attention they pay, not just to documenting the crimes and the individual deaths of Ukrainian soldiers, but they will also document uh, you know, Russians that are found and they will try to make identification. So this treatment of individuals as individuals seem to, to extend beyond to, to the enemy. So even though they don't treat their own um, in an individual basis and don't seem to care about documenting, reporting back to families, the Ukrainian government is, is doing that from what I can tell. Yes, they started from the beginning and uh, there are special bases uh, which were created for Russian families to find uh, their soldiers. Uh, but as I know, they are now blocked in Russia, so people from there can use only VPN to check them. And uh, also, I wanted that um, there is different stories from uh, Russian soldiers who become prisoners of the war in Ukraine, who were captured, and they told that their um, colleagues, their soldiers from their 
army just leave them because they want to uh, run away from uh, Ukrainian soldiers and they don't even think about to help their colleagues. And it's insane because I know how Ukrainian forces now works uh, in the southern part of Ukraine, in the eastern part of Ukraine, and how they estimate human life and how they try to keep every life. And uh, that's why I even can't uh, imagine what's going on in their heads. Yeah, it's it, it must come from decades and decades of... Uh not having any control or say in your political system or any control over your you know your personal life and uh, it's it's very difficult to imagine isn't it and you know one of the things that is frightening i think uh, and and of course russia is using this is that because they don't have that same concept of of, of human life individual life they are using a number of threats uh, of uh, you know, causing further mass incidents or casualties. And this is something I think we, we we talked about prior to this video, was the role of nuclear terrorism, whether the risk is growing, whether the risk is receding, and what is the Ukrainian government's attitude to it? Does it actually change anything? Um, the constant allusion to nuclear weapons, tactical battlefield nuclear weapons, is this just an empty threat? Um, or can Ukraine not afford to sort of give in to or pay attention to these kind of threats? Well, I can speak from myself. And the last time I was scared of uh, nuke, it was on the 9th of May. It's so-called day of victory. And Russians, uh, they love significant dates. And uh, it was like, at the beginning, I come back to Kyiv. Uh, uh, because there was no Russian troops nearby already. And we were sitting with my friends in cafe, cafe and um, discussing, will we die tomorrow or not? Because it was on the 8th of May. And uh, it was like, you know, Eric Maria remark vibe when it's war around and you just sitting and discussing um, essential problems. But um, for now, I think it's now we just think that it's threatening and uh, nothing is going on uh, after these threats. So people just bothered about it. And um, of course, I have um, potassium yodid tablets and uh, I have some reserves of food and water at my home, at my office, but... Um, in case of uh, you know what but uh, i'm just tired to think about it every day because it's very tiredful and um, russian authorities medvedev for example they love so much to threaten ukrainian with those nuclear weapons and uh, he told um, last week i think that uh, they will use it for liberating uh, Ukrainian territories. And he told that uh, liberating Ukrainian territories actually is a threat to the existence of uh, present-day Russia Federation. And uh, he also mentioned that it means that it's a direct reason for applying nuclear weapon. 
And of course, we've seen this with other Russian threats, haven't we? They know that it resonates. It resonates with Ukraine because of Chernobyl and the direct experience of, of what it's like to have fallout uh, affecting your lives. They also know that it resonates in the West and countries, especially in Germany and France, um, take these kind of threats to heart. And I think it does persuade these countries not to send arms and not to send arms so quickly. So whether they're going to use it or not, strategically, you know, these lies and threats have a real purpose uh, to prevent, you know, um, unity of the Western allies. I think yes, but, um, you know, uh, they threaten with nuclear weapon, they have been threatened, like, the escalation of the conflict if Ukraine will go to NATO, and um, threatening is uh, their favorite thing, as for me. But um, I think that uh, Western partners of Ukraine shouldn't be scared of Russia, actually, because they are not as powerful as they try to show. In fact, they're very, very weak potentially now, and, and that might extend to Putin himself. There are, of course, many rumors that he's he's unwell. Um, whether they're true or not, he certainly doesn't seem to have anything to lose, does he? Because if he visibly loses the war, uh, which he's likely to do, and if the population find out about the true losses and the, the real senselessness of it, that could mean that Putin not only loses power, but loses his life. Um, what is your, your sense of, uh, of um, this idea that he really has nothing to lose uh, at this point? Well, if he had something to lose, he would not start this war, actually. That's my point of view. And um, as for me, now he tries to write his names down in uh, historical textbooks, and he did it in not the best way he could. Um, and um, now he just cosplays Hitler, uh, because he he's doing the same things. Uh, he like he's like working on his manual and um, all this story with. Um, annexation of Crimea, the same story like it was with the Anschluss of Austria in 1938. And uh, they also told about that uh, they want to um, uh, unite all Germans in one state. It's what Putin uh, is doing now. They He tries uh, to connect all uh, Russian-speaking people in one state. But um, I don't think that um, he uh, understands what he is actually doing. And uh, as for me, I don't want to see Putin's death. I want to see Putin to be judged uh, and uh, also to be judged everyone who took part in this war from the Russian side because um, death is too easy way out uh, from what uh, they done. And in fact, understanding the psyche of the Russian elite and the fact that they respect only sort of power and to some extent violence, if those people are brought to justice, if they are brought in front of the Hague, it will be probably the worst thing in their minds that could happen to them, the, the total reduction of their power to zero. 
and uh, facing the truth of their actions, uh, potentially showing what small, pathetic, lying people they are, uh, is is definitely the best thing that could happen. Yeah, and um, not sure that even Putin's death can stop the war, actually, because there are a lot of people in Russian authorities who are infected of the imperialistic set of mind and the next president of Russia could possibly be um, worse than Putin, actually. And um, even opposition is in Russia. I'm not sure they are ready for negotiation uh, with Ukrainians now. Uh, for example, Navalny, uh, who is the most popular uh, op opposi opposition to Putin, uh, he told about that Crimea should be Russian. And we have a uh, different point of view on this topic, you know. And uh, I think that it, there is a high possibility that they will change their narratives if uh, after the Putin's death. But I'm not sure that uh, they are on our side, on the side of democracy, actually. And in fact, I mean, that that's a, I don't believe Navalny or any liberal will come to power in Russia. But if they did, and they handed back Crimea, and they handed over a big percentage of their uh, energy revenues in reparations, which is absolutely what must happen, that liberal government would probably be defeated, or there'll be a coup against them very quickly. In that respect, it's probably only a hardliner in the Kremlin who could actually negotiate uh, a peace and can keep control uh, of, of the internal population. But Russia itself, it's been speculated, may start to crumble and disintegrate. So it's it's very uncertain, isn't it, what's going to happen there. And of course, we now see Prigozhin uh, gaining much more control of the narrative. And he is probably, in my view, the worst of, of all of them. He is one of the the ones with least, you know, moral limitations. Um, he's almost like, uh, you know, if you look at those who um, took over Russia at the end of Stalin's period, you had uh, Beria on the on the one hand, and you have Khrushchev, and Khrushchev being the least bad, and Beria being an absolute psychopath. I mean, Prigozhin is the Beria figure of that succession, isn't he? Yes. He's probably is, but you know, um, I'm not. Uh, I don't believe in the fact that someone from Russian authority can become the next president, a good next president, actually. And people in Russia should do something uh, with uh, their powerful people, and uh, they need to change all of them uh, to start uh, a new uh, life, because. Um, there are a lot of people who are in charge in Russia now who want to be next president and uh, who want to be next president not to stop the war or something like that. They just want to be as um, rich as Putin. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, And that was interesting you mentioned that because if we turn to the profession of journalism, um, over the last 30 years, Ukraine has systematically created new institutions. In many cases, it's removed entirely, you know, the old Soviet institutions and everyone associated with them. Um, that process 
didn't really happen in Russia to the same extent, does it? So I spoke to Evgen Fedchenko, who um, obviously helped to sort of create the new school of journalism in, in Ukraine. And he was talking about the process of literally tearing up the rule book, starting again, removing all the people who were inculcated in the old ways. To an extent, that kind of has to happen in Russia, doesn't it? I mean, Dozhd and Echo are good, but they're certainly not enough. And there are a vast amount of propagandists and, and other journalists that would have to be removed to make a fresh start. Well, actually, in Russia, there are no journalism right now. Not All, anymore. Uh, no. <laughs> not anymore. All Russian journalism is in exile. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, I think they will come back after the Putin's death, after some changes. But... Um, I don't know actually what we should do, not we, but the judges, what should do with the Russian propagandists because they did so big job in this war. So I think that they should be judged uh, as well as uh, those people who who killed uh, Ukrainians on their land. Very much so. And um, I, I, I don't watch much Russian TV directly, but I do see many of the clips replayed. Um, and some of the things which the, well, not some, all of the things propagandists say go from awful to extremely awful. That seems to be the kind of scale. Um, no, I, I, when we were discussing this call, you mentioned one of the questions we, we would be good to explore is the difference between Russian propaganda and Ukrainian propaganda. Um, and I guess there's a big difference in content, tone and scale. Um, but I'd love to know your view on the differences there, because every government in wartime has an element of manipulating information, an element of propaganda of a sort. But could you describe the, the key differences? Well, when we look at Russian propaganda, we can see uh, the way that uh, propaganda was created uh, during the Second World War. For example, if we have uh, on Ukrainian side uh, an article that uh, Russian soldiers have shelled the uh, Ukrainian border, Russians will just uh, rewrite it like Ukrainians have shelled Russian border. And it's very simply, but people in Russia believe in it. And uh, they create so much strange narratives that uh, if you have a critical thinking, you will not believe in, but they continue to believe in. For example, all those bio laboratories with pigeons uh, who are gonna um, kill Slavic people. Um, well, Ukrainians are also Slavic people. So it's um, strange to hear such stuff from uh, uh, television, actually, government television, but people believe in that and it's very strange. And um, it should be mentioned that Russians um, created a wide net of Russian propaganda in Europe also. They started to do it even before 2014. So uh, they invest a lot of money in those propaganda. Uh, so people in different European countries uh, also can believe in those narratives Russian proposed to them in, in their countries on the news. And um, what we do in Ukraine is um, mostly counter-propaganda. So we need to explain people why all those stuff that Russia has said 
it's not true. And um, if we're talking about Ukrainian propaganda, we are more sophisticated in the ways we created it. Um, I can um, uh, make one example. It's like you probably heard about the ghost of Kyiv, uh, who was at the beginning of the war. And we in Ukraine, uh, we think that it's like a legend uh, that gives people hope that uh, there is some powers that protect them. And um, for foreign journalists and for journalists, actually, we understand that there is no possibility that one person can uh, shut down so much uh, uh, missiles, so much uh, planes. And um, of course, it's like an an element of propaganda, but it's more sophisticated uh, than Russian one. Yeah, it's built more on mythology, built on, uh, you know, a strong story uh, rather than just a, a complete lie, which a lot of Ru Russian propaganda seems to be either extreme improbable invention or it simply takes the truth and inverts it and accuses the other side of doing what they have already already done or what they're planning to do. Well, I'm actually, I can't um, estimate the level of that. And uh, it's hard for me. It's hard for me even, uh, you know, to see Ukrainian propaganda somehow because we are here in Ukraine and it's, it, it's, the perception is quite different than when you are, uh, abroad. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why, if you have some thoughts on Ukrainian propaganda, I will like I would love to hear it because it's it's nice to understand how people from abroad um, percept it. I think it depends on your point of view, doesn't it? I mean, it depends on the country. We were talking earlier about how news is perceived in different countries, and actually how. Even in the UK, you find that some propaganda myths work their way almost unconsciously into some reporting. Um, there are individuals, especially on the far right and the far left, who will consciously consume propaganda narratives. So, for instance, um, not so much denazification, but the myth that you know, Ukraine has more of a nationalist problem than other European countries rather than less, which is the fact. Um, that is quite a persistent myth that uh, still uh, finds its way into mainstream press. Um, but in the UK, it's fairly limited, as it were. Often it's just um, the use of inaccurate language, especially around the separatist republics or, you know, people... Um, uh, you know, being evacuated from occupied territories when actually they're deported and, 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 and filter, filtered. Um, so it, it's an accurate sort of sloppy language and ignorance of history and politics. Whereas I believe that in, 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 in Italy, Serbia, Hungary, uh, you have far more of these weaponized uh, myths uh, taking center stage in reporting and being widely believed. I don't know if you've you've seen many of those sources, but I'm sure you're familiar with the kind of mythology that gets weaponized. Yes, but um, I think that the problem of these media um, is particularly in that that they will try to find out two points of view. Uh, 
the point of view of Russia and the point of view of Ukraine. They check Ukrainian media, they check Russian media, Russian media are mostly propagandistical one. And in this case, these two points of view, then they don't work because there is a point of view of victim and there is a point of view of aggressor. So they can't be evaluated like on the same way. And it's a conscious choice, isn't it? If you choose the narrative of the aggressor over the victim, then then that uh, that tells you something about that individual. Another kind of bias that I notice, which I think is, I'd love to know your opinion on, even those who are minded to take a fair view of the war, you'll tend to find that they will often quote Western experts, Western military experts, analysts, historians, etc., they will far less often turn to uh, experts on Ukrainian history and culture because, well, there aren't that many in the West. Timothy Schneider is obviously a prominent one, but there aren't that many of them. But they will also sometimes turn to Russian sources rather than Ukrainian sources. That's improved a little bit, but I'd love to hear your view on the fact that Ukrainians themselves uh, are not consulted nearly enough uh, in the Western media about their views and opinions? Well, I think the problem is that uh, there are three three times less Ukrainians as Russians, and uh, they take it by um, amount. And uh, yes, uh, there is a problem that there are more Russian, Russian, Russian-speaking um, professionals in their ways, like historians and, and other and other. But if you are a good journalist and you want to find out the truth, you will find out the good Ukrainian historic who would like to say you his point of view. And it's the same problem now in Ukraine that different media outlets like BBC, Associated Press, they uh, started to open offices here in Kyiv and they um, um, like hired people who, are, who, who were in Russia, who worked in Russia and put them in charge of Ukrainian offices. And it's also a big problem because they don't understand context. This sounds like the the issue of uh, Amnesty International again. It sounds like you're you're relying on people who don't have uh, historical context and local as much local knowledge. Yes, Amnesty is the same case, but worse one, of course. And the same problem is with uh, the Red Cross, for example. Uh, and the same problem is uh, with um, like the the people who uh, observe what's going on on Donbass, but I forgot how they uh, called. Yeah, I, I can't remember offhand, but I know I know the organization you mean, and the election monitors and so on. Yes, um, yes. I mean, my last sort of uh, couple of questions here. I mean. One of them is we now have you know, a huge number of Ukrainian uh, troops being trained in the West, uh, and Britain is the center for that. There are many experts now from Canada, Netherlands, all over the world who are coming to the UK to help train uh, Ukrainian troops. Obviously, equipment and missile systems and defense systems gets a lot of the media coverage, but how important is it 
that we now have uh, so many Ukrainian soldiers uh, being trained um, in, in sort of Western uh, methods of warfare, but also being exposed to, you know, other cultures, other countries, and then being able to come back and, you know, they're potentially fresh, energized, and they're able to then go to the front and, and help and relieve some of the people who undoubtedly are, you know, extremely tired and uh, in, in some cases traumatized um, on the front. Well, uh, we are trying to get closer to NATO standards and it's uh, the aim of our military authorities actually to become as good as NATO. And uh, that's why it's very important to show to our Ukrainian soldiers how actually it can look like. Uh, and uh, the United Kingdom uh, seems to be a great partner in different ways. And they also took a lot of Ukrainian militaries on courses. And we have um, a reportage uh, several weeks ago from uh, the polygon, one of the polygons. And... Um, it looks very professional and the soldiers who were there, they are very motivated. They are very inspired. They want to do, uh, they want to use those knowledge. They get there uh, actually on the front line. Uh, they told about that they don't want to waste all those uh, patrons on those bullets on the trainings. They want to use them actually where they need to be used. That, that's, I mean, that's extremely positive and it compares very sharply, doesn't it, to the so-called mobiki or mobilized uh, conscripts in Russia um, who not only have terrible equipment, they have almost no training before being, you know, grabbed off the street and sent to the front line. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, videos from those mobiki uh, who just get drunk on their training polygons if they have those trainings. But uh, when they go to Ukraine, uh, they, I think they don't understand what's actually going on because in their news, there is totally different picture what's going on. They are winning in Russian news and they came to Ukraine to win. But actually, that's not they uh, see the, here. And um, as I see as I understand that um, now they try to go to captivity uh, because it's better for them it's better like in many ways they will be alive and they will have uh, opportunity to live best life actually <laughs> than they live in Russia especially if uh, they are from depression regions and um, it seems for me that as we have already discussed, Russia don't value human lives. And uh, that's why they just push all those uh, young guys at the uh, pieces of meat and not like uh, soldiers. And do you think some of them will understand when they arrive uh, and have spent some time in Ukraine? Do you think some of them start to realize that the propaganda narrative was false, that there are no Nazis, that their military operation is a war, that it's not a precision-based war, that it's an all-out war. Do you think some of them will come to the realization that uh, you know their side is the aggressor and is wrong? Well, 
I'm sure that they will understand that it's war, not like a special military operation. And I'm not sure that uh, they will understand uh, that there are no Nazis uh, all around Ukraine, uh, because for that uh, they should uh, speak with some people, they should uh, communicate, they should understand what's going on, but um, they are in fields with uh, their colleagues and it's not that thing that they will understand that that's not true that their government tried to uh, say them they'd have to be taken prisoner wouldn't they and potentially you know be able to talk to other people who've been perhaps in captivity for a while longer yes and there are some interviews from uh, russian posts and they told that uh, there are no Nazis, they are in good conditions, and uh, they didn't understand what's going on. And I'm not sure that people from Russia who saw those videos uh, will understand that, but it was like from the first person, from the first person who is actually Russian. And um, I think that um, Russian propaganda worked very well. And it's very hard now to to ruin those uh, wall of propaganda in people's minds. Well, Alina, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you. Um, I can only wish that the war comes to a speedy end. I, I suspect it won't, but uh, I am assured that Ukraine will be victorious in the end. Um, and... Uh, Stay safe. That's all I can say because I know you're in uh, your Kiev, and uh, life is not particularly easy now with the uh, the power cuts. Um, fortunately, we got through the whole interview without the power going down, which was something we were worried about. Um, but all I can say is 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 good luck, and and uh, I really appreciate you spending the time talking to me. Thank you very much for this conversation. I hope it was helpful for you, and it was also fascinating for me. Слава Украине! Героям слава!